This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A big sigh of relief today here and around the world as RCMP announced a dramatic end to the manhunt for teenage murder suspects. The Mounties found the bodies of what they believe are Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod in the dense brush in northern Manitoba. And while RCMP say an autopsy is needed to confirm the identities, they also say they are confident it is them. Rumina Dea has more on how the remains were found and where we go from here. On day 16 of the Canada-wide manhunt, it's over. We believe these are the bodies of the two suspects wanted in connection with the homicides in British Columbia. The bodies discovered in the dense brush 10 a.m. Wednesday by RCMP officers on foot in the Gillam area of Manitoba. The discovery of a damaged boat over the weekend leading investigators to a major breakthrough. On Friday, August 2nd, that one critical piece of evidence was found. Items directly linked to the suspects were located on the shoreline of the Nelson River. Police not revealing what the mystery items are. They will only say the bodies were found within one kilometre of this crucial evidence, which was discovered approximately eight kilometres away from where the suspect's burned-out getaway vehicle was found dumped in the bush near Fox Lake Cree Nation on July 22nd. Oh, I, for myself, uh, absolute relief uh, for the communities of Gillam and Fox Lake for this to finally be over. Communities in the north on lockdown, all of Canada on edge, as the manhunt intensified for 19-year-old Cam McLeod and 18-year-old Briar Schmigelski. The Port Alberni teens wanted for the murders of three people, Australian Lucas Fowler, his American girlfriend China Deese, and Leonard Dick, a botanist and UBC lecturer, all found dead in northern BC the week of July 15th. It's huge to be able to hopefully give some people uh, an opportunity to exhale and to hopefully eventually go back to normal and not being afraid of who's out in the woods anymore. The teens charged with second-degree murder in Dick's homicide. Charges were also anticipated in the murders of Fowler and Deese. But why? What's the evidence? What was the motive? It's going to be extremely difficult for us to um, ascertain uh, definitively what the motive was. All right, Rumina Dea joins us live from the newsroom with more on this. Rumina, what are RCMP saying about how Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod died? Not a, not a lot of new information at the press conference in Surrey. BC RCMP not releasing any details on how the suspects died. You know, everyone wondering, was this a murder-suicide? Was it animals or something else? We just don't know at this point. Autopsies are going to be done in Winnipeg tomorrow. Sophie. Hopefully this will provide some sense of release to the victims' families. Has there been any reaction from them today? 
We did reach out to the mother of China Deese on Facebook. She replied just after hearing the news the suspect's bodies were found. All she wrote was one word in her response. Speechless is what she said. There is also a post on China's sister's Facebook page that reads, Canada manhunt ends as police find bodies of two suspects in Lucas Fowler, China Deese murder. The last words, dear Jesus, Amen. We have also reached out to the Fowler family in Australia. It's still very early there. It's Thursday morning. As soon as we get something, we will update you. Sophie. All right. Ramina Dea reporting live for us tonight. Ramina, thank you. All right. Our Kylie Stanton is in Port Alberni, where Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski were from. And Kylie, obviously, there's been a lot of attention on that small town. What are people saying there tonight? Yes, Chris, it's actually been a tough couple of weeks for this community. Many of the residents here have gone from worrying about two of their own, Cam McLeod and Brad Schmigelski, thinking that they were missing, to complete shock upon learning that they were actually murder suspects in the BC Northern, Northern BC murders. Since then, it's been tense, many people wanting answers as the nationwide manhunt has unfolded and awaiting the fate of the two young men, which, of course, we learned today. It's about time. Glad they got him. I hate to say it, but dead or alive. Today there's finally a closure then that they didn't say when they died or when they were deceased, no. Well, see, that's another thing that they might have been gone for quite a while. Well, the heartbreaking for the parents, but we can't tell, can we, how the kids will turn out. Now, Port Alberni is a small city, just roughly 18,000 people, and being thrust into the international spotlight, uh, spotlight under these circumstances has been difficult. Today, the mayor said this does bring some closure, but it's not the outcome they were hoping for. As a community and, and from the perspective of the city, we are just incredibly saddened by the news. Um, it's not the outcome that we were hoping for, and I mean, there's just been so much tragedy here. I don't think that um, it brings any relief, unfortunately. Um, this is a tragic situation um, with a tragic ending. And um, it, I think we had all hoped that we would get answers. Um, and I'm, I don't know if we'll, you know, the answers that we'll get will be much more limited now. As for the Schmigelski and McLeod families, there were several vehicles parked outside of their homes here today. No trespassing signs were also posted, along with a notice on one of the doorways that said they are asking for privacy at this time and they will not make any statements to media. Chris, Sophie? Hard to imagine what they're going through right now. Kylie in Port Alberni, thank you, Kylie. Now in other news, breaking details of a rampage along Highway 99. RCMP say it started just after 3 this afternoon. Dees Island Traffic Services, with the assistance of Delta Police and Richmond RCMP, received multiple 911 calls about an erratic driver. A Dodge Ram pickup collided with a number of vehicles as its driver continued south on the highway before turning onto Highway 17 toward the ferry terminal. Witnesses say the truck eventually lost a wheel and came to a stop. That's when officers made an arrest. These pictures from Global One show a black pickup being latched to a tow truck. Thankfully, it is believed no one was seriously injured. 
A disturbing attack on a woman in her own backyard is prompting a warning from police tonight. The woman was on her deck just after midnight when she was suddenly grabbed from behind. Grace Key has more on how the woman managed to get away and what police have to go on. Residents in Abbotsford's Clearbrook area are shaken up after learning one of their neighbors, a 42-year-old woman, was attacked in her own backyard. It's not too surprising. It's disturbing, though. I am mostly coming from my work at night, like 12 a.m., 1 a.m., so now I feel very, like, fear. It happened just after midnight on Tuesday. She was sitting alone on her back deck when a man grabbed her from behind. Police say it was sexually motivated. The assault ended when a neighbor returned home. The attacker ran off with an electronic device belonging to the victim. Unfortunately, because the attack was from behind and the nature of the circumstances, she was unable to get uh, a good look at the suspect. Um, we have some other investigative avenues that we're pursuing at this time. A similar incident happened in Surrey's Newton neighborhood last month. A woman was gardening in her front yard when a man pulled into her driveway asking for directions. He allegedly groped her before getting back into his car. As for the Abbotsford woman, she was treated in hospital for minor injuries. Grace Key, Global News. A Vancouver geologist has been killed in a plane crash near Mayo Lake in the Yukon. 33-year-old Julia Lane was the lone passenger in the Cessna 208 caravan operated by Alcan Air that went down shortly after takeoff from a mining airstrip in remote Rakla Tuesday morning. 24-year-old pilot Sean Kitchen of Whitehorse also died. Lane, who had been working in mineral exploration in the territory for more than a decade, was a managing partner of a geological consulting firm. A wildfire burning north of Oliver has quadrupled in size since Monday. The Eagle Bluff fire now stands at more than 900 hectares. Global Shelby Chom has more on the battle ahead for fire crews and the more than 200 properties on evacuation alert, including Okanagan inmates. BC Corrections says it is prepared to evacuate 200 inmates at the Okanagan Correctional Centre behind me and transfer them to other facilities in BC should this fire pose a greater threat in the coming days. We can see five shuttle buses on standby in the facility's parking lot. If you take a walk with me, you can see the proximity of this prison to the Eagle Bluff wildfire burning just over my shoulder in the hills above Oliver. As a precaution, an additional 100 high-security inmates were moved to other max security jails in the province on Tuesday night, according to the union representing corrections workers. The Ministry of Public Safety refuses to confirm or deny the movement of any inmates, citing security reasons. Meanwhile, the human-caused wildfire has quadrupled in size since Monday, now mapped at 900 hectares. The fire service says progress is being stifled by hot weather. Temperatures in the high 30s, very low relative humidities, and we had upslope winds, so it was the the, the worst combination, really, of conditions to really cause um, explosive uh, fire behavior last night. The Asuyus Indian Band putting 10 more area properties on notice. The current fire situation, we just go by whatever the Forest Service tells us, and they tell our people to put on evacuation alerts and 
That's happened in the last couple of days. More than 200 properties within the regional district also remain under evacuation alert tonight. No orders have been issued. The wildfire smoke is deteriorating air quality. The smoky skies warning remains in effect. Meanwhile, the local tourism industry is taking a hit with cancellations. Operators want to get the message out that they are still open for business. There's a little smoke in the air, but it's not that bad. The fire is way away from the town. Research where you're going. It's, it doesn't cover the whole area. I guess if you had uh, respiratory problems, then it's probably not a good idea. But if you're okay with it, it hasn't been that bad. The height of fire activity in this province typically occurs in August. The fire danger rating remains very high to extreme across the Okanagan Valley. Shelby Tom, Global News, near Oliver. Meantime, the much smaller Mount Miller fire burning north of the Okanagan Connector, northwest of Peachland, is said to be held in place at just under a hectare in size. It's burning in a remote area near Trepanier Creek at the base of Mount Miller and is not threatening any structures at this time. That fire was first reported Tuesday evening and is believed to be human-caused. Right now, though, more drama in the controversy over filming disruptions in Ladner tonight after business owners complained that compensation from the production Supernatural was unfair and inadequate. The city responded by saying it had no official complaints. But as Nadia Stewart reports tonight, some residents feel their concerns have been swept under the rug. Some of the bigger productions will have trucks lined up from that end right down to the very end. Justin Haddon says film crews come to his neck of the woods in Ladner often, up to seven times a year. Many of them are pleasant to deal with, but he says some of them are not. The bad ones, they just don't even listen to us. They just bully us and, and you know, keep us up late at night. They have set up lights purposely to shine on our house. They've also left cars running in front of our house. Um, they set up generators right across the street from us when there was no need to. Haddon says production companies shoot on the road or on the lot beside theirs, and filming can take up to five days. Those concerns are documented in emails sent to the city of Delta. They say they've been, quote, called names by some of the set workers and told to, quote, try to go back to bed when they complain about the bright lights. Haddon says he isn't pleased with the city's response so far. They always say, oh, you know, how much money it puts into, you know, the local economy, which it does and provides good jobs. But in the meantime, it's costing a lot of people money. You know, the, the business owners down in Latin are there, you know, they're getting a raw deal. I'm actually losing money by having, you know, like no parking. Some small business owners in Ladner Village say inadequate compensation coupled with back-to-back -back filming is hurting business. In an email, the city's director of engineering says they have been working to address the concerns raised. Haddon says up to now, it hasn't felt that way. They didn't take any of my concerns and then they, you know, were sticking up for the production guys more than they were for the citizens of Delta. Nadia Stewart, Global News. A controversial ski resort proposal in southeastern B.C. has been dealt another major blow. The province's highest court has ruled the environmental assessment certificate for Jumbo Glacier Resort is now invalid. The certificate issued to Glacier in 2004 required that work begin within five years, which was later extended to 10 years, but with no substantial work underway. That certificate is now invalid and the resort must start all over if that project is to proceed. 
Returning to our top story now, BC murder suspects Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod are believed to be dead, but many questions remain. That's right, RCMP revealing today they found the remains of two people in northern Manitoba and they are confident it's the two they were looking for. Global Sarah McDonald joins us now live with more on how this all unfolded today. Sarah. Chris, well, as you mentioned, closure finally in some respects as that manhunt that has gained uh, global interest and attention has drawn to a close finally. But still, there are so many unanswered questions that remain tonight. And we may never know the answer to the biggest one. And that is why did those two Vancouver Island teens allegedly go on a killing spree in northern B.C. last month? B.C. RCMP announcing this afternoon, we may never know what allegedly drove those two young men to kill at random, saying they do not believe there is any further risk to the public, and there is nothing to link the murder victims found at two separate crime scenes days apart. The innocent casualties here, of course, China Deese and Lucas Fowler, American and Australian nationals respectively, and Vancouver native and UBC lecturer Leonard Dick. Their death sparking that national manhunt that started here in BC and spanned multiple provinces over the course of 16 days, finally culminating in rural Manitoba this morning, where the bodies of two men believed to be Schmigelski and cloud were found. We asked the BCRCMP today if they think more roadblocks or resources in northern BC after the bodies of those first two victims were found deceased could have stemmed what ultimately became a national ordeal and here is how they responded. I can't speak specifically to what other measures we could have could have taken in this particular case. Um, we, we rely on the information that we have, the, the timeliness of the information. We may get information that is not verifiable until it's checked or verified. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a balance sometimes before speaking with the media and giving erroneous information that could end up complicating matters. So we want to be sure before we alert the public's assistance that we're actually looking for the right type of vehicle, et cetera. And we also want to examine evidence as it comes in. We may get hundreds of tips, which may include the examination, the detailed examination of hours of surveillance uh, cameras or video for et cetera. That takes time. So the BCRCMP there, as you just heard, defending their members and their investigation, also thanking their partners in other provinces and the media at that press conference today. Now, a big question that we also asked them today is, is this investigation closed? And BCRCMP said, no, their investigation into all three murders in northern BC has not been concluded at this case, though they do reassure the public there is believed to be no risk to the public at this point. So no third party still believed to be at large. Uh, authorities are confident those two bodies found in Manitoba today do belong to Schmigelski and McLeod. As for a manner of death in that case, much speculation as to how those two young men might have died. RCMP say that is an answer we do expect to get in the coming days. Those bodies are now being autopsied in Winnipeg. And Chris, we expect to learn how those two young men died in the coming days. All right. Thanks very much for that. Sarah McDonald reporting for us tonight. Thanks, Sarah. Well, there are growing concerns tonight about a potential environmental disaster looming on the Fraser River. Missions mayor says an aging sewage pipe that runs beneath the river needs to be replaced. And time appears to be running out. As Ted Chernecki reports, if the pipe fails, millions of liters of raw sewage and toxic industrial waste could flow downstream. 
everywhere just west of the Mission Bridge, downstream all the way to the mouth of the Fraser River in Richmond, could be at risk of an environmental disaster. The mayor of Mission believes it's just a matter of time if nothing's done. 11 million liters of raw sewage and industrial waste will be emptied into the Fraser River every single day until it's contained. The problem is a high-pressure pipe that lies beneath the river floor taking all of Mission's raw residential and industrial sewage to the James Treatment Plant on the other side of Abbotsford. The pipe is 36 years old and could rupture. Mission is seeking $22 million of federal and or provincial money to help build a larger pipe parallel to the existing one. The damage that would be done environmentally and the actions that we'd have to take if there was a breach would far outreach the investment that we need on twinning this pipe in the first place. It's been well documented. Marine life in the Fraser is already facing stresses due to warming temperatures and commercial development. If we were to suddenly see, uh, you know, a sewage spill that's prolonged, any kind of increase in suspended solids causes more stress on these fish. Mission's population is just over 40,000. That's not a huge tax base for a project that's rising in cost daily. In construction costs alone on this project that we have seen, we're looking at a 50% increase in costs over the last, say, five years. Because the existing pipe is pressurized, engineers can send a camera down it for inspection. If a twin pipe is ever built, the plan would be to move the sewage over there and then inspect the old pipe and use it as backup. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Global News. Mass panic in New York's Times Square. Thousands of people sent running for cover Tuesday night after hearing what they thought was gunfire. It turns out it was only a motorcycle that backfired. But the chaos and fear was very real. That was one of uh, a number of scares across the U.S. in just the past 24 hours. Each incident highlighting how people in that country are jittery about gun violence and afraid a shooting could happen anywhere at any time. This is America on edge. People running for their lives. Terrified it's happening in their town. I thought I was going to watch my daughter get shot down in front of me. Workers evacuated today at Gannett's Virginia headquarters after a report of a former employee with a gun. We do have a lot of police now approaching the front of the building. Authorities found no evidence of violence. But similar scenes across the country. Panic in New York's Times Square last night. Emma Heaton capturing the moment that set off the stampede. People were tripping over each other. There were kids on the floor, shoes all over the place. Seeking safety wherever they could find it. NBC News' Lindsay Wolfson saw the fear firsthand. The first instinct was, oh my God, this is an attack. There was no gun, just a motorcycle backfiring, creating chaos at Broadway's To Kill a Mockingbird. Actor Gideon Glick tweeting, screaming civilians tried to storm our theater for safety. The audience started screaming and the cast fled the stage. This is the world we live in. This cannot be our world. It is our country. 
Near Salt Lake City, shoppers ran for cover at West Valley Mall, mistaking a falling sign for gunshots. These preschoolers in San Diego preparing for the real thing. Three and four-year-olds in an active shooter drill. The Cold War's duck and cover drills for a nuclear attack replaced by an all-too-real danger. U.S. President Donald Trump traveled to Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, Texas today to meet with victims and first responders involved in the recent mass shootings. In both cities, Trump was greeted by protesters demanding he take immediate action to enact stricter gun control laws. Global's Jennifer Johnson reports. Protesters lined the streets of Dayton, Ohio, as U.S. President Donald Trump arrived in this grieving city. Signs saying, do something and vote or die. Symbols of just how frustrated many Americans are with this administration's rhetoric and defense of gun rights advocates. I want to send Trump a, Trump a message that we need to have sensible gun control in this country. The president stayed out of the public's eye, privately visiting victims in the hospital, first responders and law enforcement officers. The city's mayor has her own message for the president. He's made this bed and he's got a lie in it. His rhetoric has been painful for many in our community. In El Paso, near the Mexico border, the mayor says he's just trying to help his city begin to heal. I'm, I'm sitting here focused on 22 folks from our region who have perished and uh, in an evil act. But many residents and advocates in El Paso are pointing the finger of blame directly at President Trump. The alleged El Paso shooter published an anti-immigrant screed, complaining of an Hispanic invasion of El Paso. There's a strong connection between the shooter's language and motives and President Trump's rhetoric. He has been attacking our communities in many ways. Before departing the White House, the president defended both his views and his polarizing tweets, saying his voice is one of unity. I think my rhetoric is a very, uh, it brings people together. The president says there could soon be new laws tightening up background checks for gun buyers, but none banning assault weapons used in both of these mass shootings. And there's no political appetite from it from the standpoint of legislature. Despite many Americans' appetite for banning these weapons of war, a bill in the Senate and four in the House limiting their sales have all stalled and are unlikely to ever get to a vote. Despite pressure to act, Congress remains on summer recess. There's been no emergency call to return to Capitol Hill to try and pass any new gun control legislation. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington. And Global's Jackson Prosco is in El Paso tonight. Jackson, we heard the president say that he brings people together, but some very angry demonstrators are there in El Paso. What's been their main message for Trump? Well, Sophie, they didn't want Trump here in the first place because many of them, quite frankly, blame the president and his rhetoric for what happened here on Saturday. Keep in mind, many here have felt that they were already a target of the president because back in February, he traveled here to El Paso to essentially use the city as a prop as he made the argument against illegal immigration and for the border wall that he has promised to build for so long. El Paso sits directly on the border with Mexico. The city of Juarez is on the other side. And there is a border fence that runs in between the two of them right here, right now, which Trump has held up as an example. But again, his rhetoric about illegal immigrants, his rhetoric about a so-called invasion, which he has uh, time and time again really hit home long before Saturday's shooting and so many people felt that if Trump was coming here he had to show some sort of act of contrition some apology some remorse for what happened in the end that didn't happen and protesters ended the day exactly where they started it very unhappy with the president not happy to see him in their city Sophie Jackson Prosco in El Paso Texas for us Jackson thank you
In Health Matters tonight, you could soon be relying on your phone's camera to measure your blood pressure. Researchers at the University of Toronto have developed an app that they say can read a person's blood pressure just by taking a selfie. Using the digital optical sensors in your phone, it's able to detect your blood flow patterns. When compared to a traditional cuff device, it accurately predicted the individual's blood pressure about 95% of the time. Scientists say more research is needed before the app is widely released. A critical loss for the dwindling southern resident killer whale population. Three orcas who haven't been seen in recent months are now presumed dead. Jordan Armstrong explains what may have happened to the endangered whales. Her decline was visible. The last known photo of J-17 shows the 42-year-old matriarch with a condition experts call peanut head, a deformed head and neck linked to starvation. It's very, very sad. These are known individuals. Uh, people care about them. We've gotten to know them over many, many years. J-17 now declared missing and presumed dead by the Center for Whale Research in Washington State. And she's not alone. Two males in their late 20s, K-25 and surprisingly L-84, are also gone. To hear of the third whale, uh, that was shocking. Was he hit by a ship? That leaves the southern resident population at just 73, the lowest amount in 30 years. In the late 90s, there were nearly 100. This is a population that is in trouble, and we have to double down in terms of ensuring that we are protecting their future. Researchers say a dwindling supply of Chinook salmon, increased ship noise, and marine toxins could be making life tough for the southern resident orcas. But perhaps the biggest challenges are not in our waters. We look at the Salish Sea as being the only home for these animals. And yet this is just, it's like a little piece of their backyard. As much as we can protect here, we also have to ensure that in the U.S. they're being equally protected. And we're not talking about Puget Sound, because they're, they're also doing extraordinary efforts. We need to talk about California and Oregon. If there's good news, it's in the offspring. Two female calves were born this year, adding to a juvenile population made up mostly of males. I think we can hope that the future is going to lie with these two young calves that were born this year. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. A crackdown at one of Rome's most famous landmarks. We'll tell you why police are going after tourists at the Spanish Steps. Coming up right after the forecast. <laughs> Stand up. Yeah. All right. Uh, Yvonne Shell is with us with a look at that forecast. And, oh, we've set some records, have we? Another hot one, yes, unofficially, too. Uh, one for trail at 38.6 in areas near Lytton today, heating up with 36.1. And with the hot weather, we've got our We Love Water a trivia and campaign that's promoting some tips to save water. So the question for this evening, shorten your shower by two minutes can save how many liters of water per month? I'll have the answer coming up very shortly at the end of my forecast. Here's a beautiful shot of what we've been seeing today. Today, the weather picture, temperatures are still sitting at 24 degrees. We've got a southwesterly wind at 30, but the gusts are picking up out of the airport up to 33 kilometers per hour. Highs today across uh, Metro Vancouver getting closer to 29 degrees. Coltis Lake, Chilliwack up to 31 degrees. And with the Humidex, many areas were feeling into the low 30s and the heat for the interior. So trail with the unofficial record-breaking numbers. Areas near Kamloops today getting up to 36 degrees. The active weather this evening still across the northeastern 
corners, the central interior with the risk of thunderstorms. And we still have a couple of warnings and special weather statements in effect. Fraser Canyon, a heat warning. And for the southern interior, the Thompson Okanagan included within that, the special weather statement with the temperatures getting up to 35 degrees or exceeding that. And the overnight lows will be closer to 15 degrees. A bit of a reprieve, though, for the heat will kick in as we approach the weekend with temperatures getting back into the low 20s for a few spots. But the fire danger rating at moderate to high. Now the southern half in the interior with a few spots at extreme. So please be diligent with your campfires as well as your cigarette butts with the dry temperatures, with the dry conditions and lack of rain. Coastal sections tomorrow will see a bit of drizzle. Inland for the northeastern areas, rain and heavy at times, 15 and up to 30 millimeters. Much of the central interior will still have that instability with the risk of thunderstorms. Thompson, Okanagan, temperatures into the 30s and along the south coast, the northern and central areas of the island will start off with some cloud cover and then a clearing for the afternoon. Temperatures tomorrow with the Humidex feeling closer to 29 degrees. Friday, we've got a mix of sun and cloud and a break will be on our Saturday with a chance of showers and a high of 20 degrees. Our answer tonight is 460 liters. If you shorten your shower by two minutes, that's how much you can save in the month. And if you'd like more tips, go to welovewater.ca. Guys. Wow, that's a lot of water. It seems like showering under a fire hose would be 460 liters. But <laughs> see, that's why we run these things. So we learn. All right, back to those scofflaw tourists. First, eating and drinking were banned. Now people are no longer allowed to sit on the famous Spanish steps in Rome. The new rule came into effect last month, but police have only started to enforce it in the past couple of days. The 18th century marble steps are a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Anyone who's caught sitting could face a nearly $375 fine. Damaging or making a mess on those steps could land you a $900 fine. I would say this, because of so much volume of traffic, it's probably not a good idea to sit there and have all that congestion taking place. So in order to keep the traffic in and out, you can't sit there. So that's fine. I'm fine with it. <laughs> Stand up. He's yeah. fine with it. Everybody should be fine with it. <laughs> What's going on? Oh, you know, sports stuff. Yeah. So I'll tell you about it. So yesterday, uh, the Whitecaps brought in Honduran winger Michael Chirinos. I shouldn't say brought in. They signed him because he has some visa issues that haven't been sorted out yet. But when he does get to Vancouver, he will be in shape to play right away. He won't have any of those visa issues sorted out in time for the game in Portland this Saturday. But maybe next Saturday when the Whitecaps play host to Wayne Rooney and D.C. United at B.C. Place. Now, the Whitecaps would love to add at least one other international player, but the deadline to do that is 10 o'clock tonight, so it's going to be tough. Vancouver has only five wins this year. We all know the Whitecaps' problems, and even though it seems like this rebuild has stumbled, head coach Mark DeSanto says the plan is actually slowly taking shape. You guys only see what's in front of you. It's normal. It's not your job to do what I'm doing. Uh, and sometimes maybe you can understand the full picture of it. But I've said it since I arrived and they want to have a plan to, with the staff to build something important here. And that plan has growing pains and is difficult. Uh, but, but we have to stay on the course of what we want to do. Since winning the Masters in April, Tiger Woods has played in just four tournaments, and he has made the cut in only two of them. He will play in the Northern Trust starting tomorrow, the first of three tournaments to decide 
the FedEx Cup champion of 2019, but that sometimes good, sometimes bad back of his has not just limited his playing time, but his practice time as well. I can't practice as much as I'd like. Um, certainly can, can't even sniff where, how much I practice, used to practice. This is kind of how it is. You know, some days I'm stiffer than others. Um, yesterday I was out there hitting it great, um, driving out there with Brooksy and DJ. And, you know, today I'm, I'm stiff. You know, hopefully I'm not that way tomorrow. Okay, for all of us who have played golf for years and changed our swings more than we change our shirts, read every tip in golf magazines, taken lessons from 10 different pros, and despite all of that are still as inconsistent as the day we started, I present to you all of our golfing dreams personified in a 10-year-old boy from Richmond. Describe your game for me. Are you a short game guy? Do you like to bomb it off the tee? Describe your game for me. My, my iron play is probably, I think, the best part of my game. Because when I started, we basically just worked on like swing, and I hit it pretty good. As you can see, Alex Zhang hits it better than good. His swing is world-class. Off the tee, the 10-year-old who currently sports a five handicap can launch it upwards of 240 yards. This from a youngster who just picked up the sticks two years ago and is now a world champion. It is definitely some pure natural talent. I said the first week that I worked with him with my coworkers and my and my wife when I came home, I said, this this kid has something special. You didn't have a lot of hinge, but you yeah. just using full body rotation. Colin Bykowski has been teaching Alex for two years. This is Alex's first swing, one the then eight-year-old wanted no part of. He was actually into swimming. He was loving swimming. His dad really wanted to play golf, so he came in for his first golf lesson. He was crying out in the parking lot. He was wearing a ski jacket. He was wearing Healy shoes. He came in for an intro session. Uh, we just had a phenomenal first session together, and he started golf that day. And he's been getting better and better every single time he's on the course. The growth that you've seen in two years. Well, honestly, I've never seen anything like it. Um, no golfer I've ever worked with has improved this quickly. To go from, I mean, his first ever tournament at Tawasin Springs, 18-hole tournament, I think he shot 129. And two and a half later, years later, he shoots 64, 8-under par. It's just unbelievable. That was a bogey-free 8-under par 64. And it was on a course just outside of Pinehurst to win the U.S. Kids Golf World Championship, where Alex carded scores that you and I could only dream about. So I shot 72, 69, and 65. What was the winning score? The winning score was 11 under and it was me. Superstar little golfer, 10 years old, and our current world champion. Playing golf is fun for me. I don't know why, but I just like it. And he can play. Michael Dick and Team Canada, the Gretzky Halenka, or the Halenka Gretzky if you like. And this is Quinton Byfield. Now, he's going to score a great goal coming up between his legs. Byfield's a guy you're going to hear a lot about heading into next year's draft because he's going to be a top 10 pick, maybe higher than that. He's big and he's got soft hands. Example, we just saw that goal. Here it is again. Through the legs and in against the Czech Republic. The kid who passed it to him is also going to be a high draft pick. Henrik's Lapierre. There he goes, shorthanded, and he scores, and Canada wins easily. 7-1.
Well, this guy has been ripping things up for the Blue Jays, Bo Bichette. Ten-game hitting streak, but more than that, the guy has doubles in eight straight games. And he's a rookie. That's a team record. Breaks the old one by Carlos Delgado. Uh, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., home run for the Jays. This is against Tampa. Now, I know the Jays are not going to the playoffs this year. They are truly in a rebuilding mode, but that's pretty cool. Uh, Derek Fisher, whom they just got from Houston, hits a two-run homer here. The Jays, since June 16th, have actually hit more home runs than any team in the majors. And Coquitlam lost its first game at the Canadian Little League Baseball Championships today, 12-2 against a team from Quebec, and that team from Quebec is 5-0. Coquitlam is 4-1 and has clinched a spot in the semifinals. At the uh, Rogers Tennis, mm -hmm. uh, Milos Ronich is back, forced in the pullout. He was playing Felix Auger-Aliassime, so he moves on. Denis Shapovalov lost, but... Andreescu won on the women's side. Two-year-old North Vancouver woman is preparing for a family reunion that she's been dreaming of for most of her life. She was adopted at birth and never knew her biological family. Catherine Urquhart explains how she finally found them. And now you've got one more sister to boss you around. Oh, yeah, that's what I need. 82-year-old Carly LaHaye's and her 63-year-old brother Jim Vance have oh. never met before. At least, not in person. Now, now I might have a sister I like. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> At birth, the North Vancouver woman was given up for adoption and knew very little about the circumstances. She always wondered about her medical history. All through the years, every time anybody gets sick, the first thing the doctor says to you, oh, does this run in your family? You have to say, I don't know. That looks like my daughter, Shelley. Recently, LaHaye submitted her DNA to Ancestry.ca. Within days, she found out that her teen mother later married her father. And they had seven more children together. Well, I've gone from just having a sister to having being the oldest of eight. Four of the seven siblings have died, along with Carly's birth parents. But two sisters are still alive along with brother Jim. See, all along I thought my brother Ken was my oldest, he was the oldest sibling, until we found out about Carly, and there was 16 and a half years between him and me. I looked identical to that. Next week, LaHaye's is flying to Ontario to meet her long-lost siblings and countless other relatives. We got the same hairdo. <laughs> this mother and grandmother beyond excited to meet members of her newly found family. Oh, this is going to be such fun. I've got, it's wonderful to be around people with the same kind of sense of humor. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. They seem like they've known each other forever. Yeah, yeah, soulmates in many ways too, obviously. Okay, uh, last word on a record-setting, another record-setting heat day. Yes, tomorrow will still be hot. If you're looking for a break, that'll be on Saturday, Sunday for the weekend where we could even see a chance for some showers. All right, thanks Yvonne, and thank you very much for watching. Have a great night. Good night all.